Welcome uh, to, for Trading for Keeps. Uh, I'm Brian, and this is... And this is Michael. And we have a guest today, uh, Mike McCord from Alum Shares. Uh, he's the CEO there, and I'll let him give a little bit of background about maybe himself, how he ended up starting this company, and what the company does. And cool. First, if I could just jump in here right quick. This is Michael just saying, um, you know, we're not financial advisors. Nothing we say here today should be construed as financial advice. We're not providing any buy or sell recommendations. Uh, we're just kind of talking about a different, a different vehicle of investment per se. So from here, I'll go ahead and let Mike, uh, if you could give us some background on yourself first. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Mike McCord. Background, uh, I've been trading and investing for the last 12 years or so. Uh, in college, I was kind of more trading, event-driven stuff, small dollar amounts, kind of got into options. Uh, after school, started working in private equity uh, and was kind of working in a variety of different roles in there, in and out of real estate. Uh, I've done venture on a small scale. And then as part of that, was having difficulties raising you know, small dollars for, for venture stage companies. Uh, and identified kind of an opportunity that led me to starting alum shares. So what I noticed in that time period was, you know, increasingly big companies are investing less and less in R&D uh, and seeing companies that needed, you know, fairly sizable amounts of money um, to get to a stage where they were commercializable and they could, they could generate some real returns for investors, uh, but not seeing a lot of people out there pursuing those opportunities. Uh, so that was kind of the genesis for alum shares. What alum shares does, it lets uh, university alumni invest in companies tied to their school. So over 50% of research and development money goes through public laboratories, including universities. Uh, and so we saw a lot of opportunity there in kind of the hard science space. And so that's something I've been focused on investing in for a while. So those are kind of opportunities with longer time horizons, low liquidity, uh, but historically a pretty strong return profile. All right. So it sounds like you've definitely got a diverse background there. Can you walk us through what, what first brought you to the market then? So you said you traded, you did some trading back in the day. What was yep. that like? Uh, it was interesting. I mean, I learned a lot at first, mostly my biggest problem. And I think what a lot of people when they start out tend to do uh, is to try and size their positions way too large. Uh, and, and the reason I kind of did that, I justified it mentally is I don't have a lot of money. So what's the big deal with, you know, going all in on two, three positions. Uh, and so that was kind of my initial foray. I had some good fortune just given the timing of when I was doing it. Um, I was trading kind of towards the back end, the rally uh, post 2009 crash uh, and, you know, uh, volatile options. Uh, and so I got, fairly lucky with a lot of them, but, but my first learnings were about kind of, uh, I would say bankroll management and how to size my positions and just kind of going in with a really strong plan. Um, you know, cutting my losses short, letting my like piling into winners. And the main motivation at first was just financial. I wanted to make more money off the money I had and you know, the, the ability to do that kind of by thinking, uh, it was very intriguing. And you said that you eventually got into venture. Is that venture capitalism? Yeah. Well, initially I was working as a CFO for a number of small, small companies that needed venture money. And I realized kind of venture was going later and later stage, bigger and bigger checks, just given, you know, the institutions, their LPs that are providing the money have more and more money, more and more has to be deployed. Uh, so it was going in at later and later stages. 
in bigger and bigger dollar amounts. So I started to see, you know, in public markets uh, and in venture, kind of lower returns, uh, but big, big dollars. So that kind of drove me down downstream. Can you provide an example at all for some of those, some of the, you know, when we're talking big ventures, I mean, we're we talking, you know, Peloton, Uber, what, what are we talking here? Yeah, we're talking, I mean, all, all of the above, when you look at, at Stripe and a lot of these, if you look at a lot of the funds that are being raised now, they're raising 300 plus million dollars to deploy in growth stage companies. So companies that are in many cases, 50 plus million uh, in revenue and they're targeting kind of an IPO. Uh, but there wasn't a whole lot of capital locally available to them. So, so there's a lot of- to be kind of just a few big time investors were coming into, um, you know, some of these, some of these funding. And I guess you're saying kind of the small guy didn't have an opportunity to get in. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. And so I kind of saw an opportunity for more upside um, and kind of going in those early stage opportunities and really getting to know the companies uh, whereas some of the larger institutions that wouldn't that wouldn't necessarily be worth their time, so they would employ maybe like a scout program to go out and survey the landscape and identify those things, and then in a lot of cases they just kind of wait, and once they once they really start to validate themselves, they're happy to pay once they're de-risked more, um, because they have so much money to deploy and they have you know pretty limited time, uh, so there is a benefit I think to being smaller. Certainly. So, so, all right. So alum shares, is it, you started that? Are you, are you the founder CEO? Yeah, that's right. So I started with a team of folks in Raleigh. Um, yeah. And I started about two years ago. All right. Excellent. Um, so where, where's your company sit right now, I guess, in terms of growth over the past two years, what type of reaction has the market given you? What type of reaction have you gotten from, uh, from investors? I mean, the reaction has been really good. There's a lot of capital out there. Most people kind of their portfolios are tied up in stocks and bonds, kind of index funds. And so the opportunity for people to go in and conveniently invest in kind of alternatives with a little bit different correlation characteristics has been good. Uh, so we've raised around and deployed around 2 million bucks, uh, which is not a lot of money. Um, but at this point, we're really focused on the track record. So we're not focused on, you know, taking a little bit of money and taking some huge shots. We're trying to build that track record and show that this is demonstrate this is something that's repeatable. Certainly. All right. So that makes sense. Now, my account, my trading account is is thirty thousand dollars. So two million dollars sounds like a whole a whole lot of money to me. But what type of, I guess, are most venture capitalists playing with? Are you know? Compare, can you compare that $2 million to a different type of fund? Yeah, I mean, a lot of funds for it to really make, for the economics at a fund level to make sense, you're talking $50 million plus um, for them to kind of cover their overhead and, and staff, et cetera. Um, so this has been something where we've been doing a bit of a dance kind of to make it work in, in, in the interim. Um, and, and that's kind of one of the reasons that funds have gone bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, is because you get more leverage the bigger fund you have on kind of their their p and l gotcha all right okay. I guess I have a question how, how did you find the, those first initial investors and then like what 's the expected timeline for return you think yeah, so a lot of the initial investors were just folks that I knew or, or folks from local angel groups um, so that was kind of the initial uh, what 
what's an angel group? Yeah, so an angel group is a group of people, a lot of them uh, who have been, you know, started companies or invested in small ventures themselves, uh, who pool their capital together and invest in smaller, earlier stage companies. So often angels will be the people that are providing kind of the seed capital, which is the first outside round of money someone may take outside of going to their friends and family. So it sounds like maybe what the sharks do on the, on Shark Tank. Yeah, that's right. I mean, those guys are, are operating more like small-scale PE. They're looking for revenue uh, in a lot of cases. In some cases, angels will come in you know, even before that. So there, so the angels can come in right in that in that R and D in the research and development phase. Yeah, they're coming in early. I mean, depending on what type of company it is, if it's a software company, they're going to want to see a product in market and some signs of traction. Uh, if it's a hard tech company, you know, they may be coming in late stage R and D once a lot of the technical and compliance risk has has been minimized. Um, but it just kind of depends what what kind of company. But it tends to be folks who've had some success themselves and they have kind of more risk appetite than the average person. And, and they're importantly, like they're actively spending a lot of time looking for deals and investing in deals. Um, whereas kind of the average person, you know, doesn't really have a lot of time to devote to investing. Certainly. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That, so you're basically, so you've kind of got a niche target of who, who would invest in these companies. Um, so, May I ask how many companies have you guys uh, have you guys invested in? Yeah, so so far we've invested in three. All right, can we ask what those comp and maybe not what those companies are, but what they do? Uh, yeah, so I mean, one of them is a life science company, uh, and then we have two in the software space. All right, excellent. And how and how is the return bet on those so far? Are, are any of them generating revenue at this point, or are they still in the research and development phase? Yeah, they're all generating revenue, but at this point, we don't know what the returns will be. So we're obviously pretty encouraged by the progress we've seen, uh, but some of these things take five, ten years to play out. So in in kind of the small early stage venture space, you don't really know what you've got. Uh, for a while. I mean, it, you can know pretty quickly if, when something's not working, um, but we've we've definitely been encouraged so far. Right. Out, of, out of curiosity, since you're taking equity, I'm assuming you're taking equity in these companies, are you taking like actively, like are you voting on their boards? Are you, you know, kind of directing the, the direction they go in? Are you helping them out? Like what's your role uh, yeah, in the company's it, operations? It depends on the investment and kind of our check size. So ones where we're writing a smaller check proportionally, uh, we're not, you know, actively involved to the extent the company's sending out uh, requests for investors to, I mean, like key hires, things like that we help with. Um, but for ones where we're kind of writing a bigger check proportionally into the round, uh, you know, in those cases, you know, we have, we have quite a lot of say and, and ability to help the company more. So I noticed on your website, I was looking over on alum shares and it said that less than 1% of uh of the companies that you that you investigate do you actually end up investing in um what what type of criteria do you look for uh to actually decide that this one is this one is worth actually putting our investors money into yeah so it's one of those things that um it's hard to distill it down to any one kind of like formula um but kind of the group of people and their resolve is a reasonably um good barometer of something where we're not going to immediately 
punt it. Uh, this business is something like for companies to succeed, they have to endure uh, a pretty torturous path to getting to success. Uh, so we look for people that like really have shown they're, they're all in. Um, so having kind of a smart, capable group of people that have a point of view that's different and interesting uh, in a clear way to kind of monetize that and build something really special uh, is the first thing we look for. And then looking for companies where like people obviously love their product. They're solving a real problem for someone uh, and kind of going deep into understanding that problem and who they're solving it for and what the value of that is. Uh, in the early stage, that's probably the most important things we look for. And then we look in terms of like, is this something that's, you know, reasonably, like, is the risk reasonable? Uh, so how have they de-risked it? Uh, and one of those ways is like by, by pricing. You know, we've seen a lot of stuff now where the valuations have gotten such that, you know, they're pricing it at a point where as if they've de-risked it, you know, a year, year and a half more than they have. Um, so to the extent we're deploying money into things like that, you know, we're driving up our risk and, and not able to deploy into other companies. Uh, so right now that's kind of a big issue we're having. It's just valuations have gotten to be like pretty, uh, pretty, pretty lofty for some companies that uh, show a lot of promise, but uh, there's, there's kind of a lot of hurdles to overcome. Um, so we're looking things that are kind of priced appropriately given where the company is. Okay. And that makes sense. And I think for the average person, you know, if you've watched like Shark Tank or something, you've seen that over the years where it used to be somebody would come in, ask for $50,000 for 20% of their company. And now they come in and they ask for $500,000 for 1.5% of their company. Right. And so, and so it's, but it also at the same time, you know, I look at the market and as, as much as, you know, besides the March crash, but I mean, we're basically back to all time highs is there's been so much that everyone just, you know, we're in such a raging bull market. There's just, you know, everybody's uh, just seems to be making money hand over fist that nobody wants to offer up. Uh, nobody wants to leave money on the table, essentially. Um, yeah. You know, with people have a hard time too in a market like this envisioning losing money. Uh, and so basically you see kind of these cycles of fear and greed play themselves out over and over. Uh, and it's very hard to find if it, it's harder to find deals when, you know, there's a lot of capital out there and people are feeling particularly greedy. Uh, and so that's kind of how the market to me looks right now. Yeah, I'd certainly agree with that. Um, and you, you just hit on the point. What drives the stock market? What drives any market? It's, it's fear and greed. So, but you guys, it sounds like are pretty selective in terms of your, of what you invest in though. I like it. I think it's interesting that you, it sounds like you really do invest in, in the person or the people involved in the company making sure they're all in. What type of things do you look for to make sure they're all in? Do you look for personal investment? Do you look for time investment? Yeah, time investment's a big one. I mean, sometimes uh, in the earlier stages, you'll have kind of oddly configured teams uh, or you'll have people that are really trying to, uh, you know, show, show off a little more than uh, what they've actually accomplished. So you want someone who's going to be like really honest and then someone who's kind of overcome 
some difficulties. It's helpful to see uh, when someone's upfront and honest about things that didn't work and then seeing how they responded in that situation. Um, yeah, I mean, that that's a big one. And just kind of rolling up your sleeves, investing the time, really getting to know the person, the team, uh, what motivates them, what drives them, why are they doing it, um, I, I would say is one of the biggest reasons and making sure that they have you know, some, some understanding. I mean, you don't want someone that's watched a YouTube video and all of a sudden now, you know, they want to start some billion dollar thing. You want someone who's kind of intimately uh, understands the problem, the market, their customers, they're spending a lot of time with their customers. Uh, They kind of have an honest appraisal of where they're going, uh, what, what kind of hurdles need to be overcome and how they're going to do it. That so, makes sense. Go on, Brian. I'm sorry. Yeah, Mike, so I, I guess a uh, quick question for you. So then, um, you know, the market is kind of volatile, but it's you know, generally been going up. I guess, what, what are the plans for a lump shares? Are you trying to continually raise more money? Are you trying to open it up to more people? Or what's the, what's the eventual goal of your company? Are you trying to become a $50 million fund at some point? I mean, at some point, I have no doubt that we're going to, but we're not trying to force the issue. So right now we're trying to generate returns for investors. And that's always going to be our goal, whether we're managing $2 million or we're managing $2 billion or $20 billion. Uh, And obviously the challenges change considerably as you go along that path. But our goal is generate returns for investors, quite simply. I I noticed on your platform, you know, Part of it, it seemed like you're selling kind of an app so you could track the investments over time and that you could yeah. kind of connect to your university. And I think we are talking a little bit before we started, but it was open to only accredited investors. Are you hoping to be able to expand more to the public? You know, could this be a Robin Hood-like trading platform where everybody could be investing in these kind of university startups? Yeah, we, we hope to get there one day. And we invest a lot in our technology uh, because one of the biggest impediments for a lot of people investing in this kind of thing is it's not something that's necessarily familiar or intuitive, or they don't have the time that an angel investor has. Uh, So they need kind of some quick parameters to evaluate opportunities, to track and follow companies and see how they're doing in kind of a more passive versus an active way. Uh, If you have 20, 40 hours a week to be attending coffee meetings and kind of rigorously diligencing companies, that's one thing. But if you have a full-time day job, uh, you know, how do we make that kind of simple, easy, frictionless and, and provide a lot of that information to people? Uh, so that's what our technology platform really aims to do is make it simple, convenient. Uh, and we want to do it in a way that we can drive down cost ultimately, too. So real quick, I want to jump in here and just point out, we talked a little bit about accredited investors. If you don't know what an accredited investor is, an accredited investor is somebody that has either as an individual has $200,000 of income per year or as a couple has $300,000 of income per year and then has a net worth of over a million dollars. So that's a fairly high bar, I think, for the average American to actually become a credited investor. Um, yep. And that's, that's the, uh, the threshold that is set for each or for, individual, uh, for individuals to invest in a hedge fund. And it sounds like also to invest in your fund the way it currently sets what type of steps are you, are you making though to, to bring this down to, I mean, what, what type of minimum would you like to be at? Yeah. So the biggest constraint to going to unaccredited investors, uh, one is kind of having a, a platform that lends itself to that. Uh, and the bigger one is really like compliance cost. 
So when you add considerable compliance costs and you're not managing a lot of money, that creates a huge drag on people's returns. So really you have to be of sufficient size to defray those compliance costs that you're bringing on. Uh, so you really, I mean, we would not go to unaccredited investors until that is like a fairly minimal amount. Uh, so we're thinking, you know, around, I mean, I, I won't put precise numbers on it, but we have a number in mind that once we get to, uh, we do want to open this up and make this accessible to everyone where they can go on their phone, uh, deploy money in a passive manner uh, in, into opportunities like what we're currently investing in, but it's not something that we're doing today. Gotcha. Well, I think, I think it's awesome that you are working on that because I think a lot of people, even if you look at, you know, if you look at the Uber or, you know, uh, Beyond Meat, I mean, the early investors in those, they made out like bandits, especially killed Beyond. It. Yeah, absolutely yeah. killed it, you know. And so, but anybody that bought shares, like if you bought Uber at the IPO, you've lost money. And, you know, Beyond Meat went up for a while, but if you ended up buying, you know, after that, after the initial IPO, uh, you might be holding, you might be a bag holder right now down 50%, because I think... I don't have it in front of me right now, but I know Beyond spiked to over 200. And last I checked, it was like trading around 100 a share. So, yep. um, so basically, you're trying to get this to a point where it's not an exclusive vehicle that's exclusively for the rich. Uh, may I ask, what type of a minimum do you have right now for an investor yep. to get involved? Sure. Currently, our minimums are 5000 bucks per investment opportunity. And we're going to bring those down. But currently, where we're at today, we're not taking on uh, new investors and we're not seeing a ton of opportunity. Uh, so we're not in a mode where we're saying we want to, you know, I see a ton of people raising more and more and more money. Uh, you know, unless we see really compelling opportunities to deploy it into, we're not going to do it. All right. I just have a bit out of curiosity and I think people are kind of curious how these VC funds, how, how do you make money off the, off these investments? Are you taking a commission or are you taking a percentage of the gains or is there uh, what's, what's your model to, 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 uh, succeed off of this? Yeah, so our, our model is pretty much standard, uh, which is, you know, we take a management fee on capital that we manage and then a carried interest on the underlying investments, which isn't too dissimilar from anyone else. So yeah, so management fees and then was that just a, a percentage of the gains essentially? Yep, percentage of, of profit upside. Yeah, I think that's pretty standard in the hedge fund world um, where, yeah, you do, I don't know, one to three. I've never invested in a hedge fund, so I couldn't tell you. But I know from reading a few books, it's like one to three percent management fees, and then uh, they keep twenty percent of gains. But you know, if you if you happen to be invested with uh, with somebody of the lights of Bill Ackman, you know he's up fifty or sixty percent on the year, I think. So you know you don't mind giving up twenty percent of those gains. Where the rest of the market, you know, if you just hold an S and P five hundred account, you know you're down, but probably uh, five to ten. Well, a little more than ten percent right now. Absolutely. Um, so that's where, yeah, that's where it, it definitely makes sense where some of these professionally managed packages um, can definitely start to pay, you know, pay for themselves eventually. So, all right. Yep. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So you said that you really look to invest in the people. You really look to, to find a company that's solving a problem. How, how does a company or a, a potential company find you or do you find them? How does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, we have companies reaching out to us all the time. So we currently have quite a lot of inbound deal flow from a number of places. 
Uh, we have things coming in from events, incubators, relationships. We also have, you know, a data repository of a huge number of companies uh, that we're constantly going through and, and mining and looking for kind of leading indicators that something's going on there uh, to dig a little deeper. So, you know, we have a investments acquisitions team that's kind of proactively looking out, going to events, talking to people in market and seeing kind of what what's capturing people's attention. What products are they seeing? What people are they meeting that they're seeing have tremendous promise? Uh, and then, you know, we're trying to get in and be helpful. So are you, are you geographically bound? Are you mostly looking at North Carolina deals? Are you looking in like Silicon Valley? Like, or, and then I guess, I think we had answers earlier, but like what kind of, you're kind of coming in that, that venture series A, that's, that's kind of where we're at in terms of investment? Yeah, currently we're looking at smaller check sizes, smaller being defined at maybe 500,000 to a million dollars. And we're seeing the most kind of value in the mid-Atlantic and the Midwest and the hard science space. There's a ton of interesting stuff happening in Silicon Valley, but we're just not, you know, as well connected there. And, and the valuations are such that, uh, you know, we don't really have the checkbook to compete there at this, at our, where we are today. Uh, so we're looking mostly in kind of middle America uh, and then mid-Atlantic. Where are the companies that you're invested in currently based, if I may ask? Yeah, so we've been Im investing mostly in the mid-Atlantic currently. So, so that's, that's in, the, in the North Carolina area then where we're yep, all located? Yep, North Carolina. So we're in RTP, Research Triangle Park. You know, there's a ton of biotech in the area. So we're looking around quite a bit there. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in ag tech, you know, software. There's there's certainly things happening there as well. What what types of software? Can you give us any examples of the types of software? Because, I mean, it seems like, you know, I remember hearing an old phrase. I think it was like they said it, the patent office said it in like 1900. They're like, everything that could be invented has been invented. And obviously, you know, here in 2020, we realize that there's just, there's so many more problems to be solved. Um, but every, you know, every problem that's solved seems to bring out new problems. Is there a what, what types of problems have they been working on, if I may ask, if you could speak even in broad terms about them? Yeah, so what we're seeing that's interesting to us in that space right now is kind of the intersection of software and other things. So software applications, uh, where now we're having, you know, better sensors or better uh, sources of data where then we can actually apply, apply that software. Uh, I mean, AI and machine learning is, is kind of the classic example right now playing itself out. And seeing the intersection of biotech and software, you know, we're seeing a ton of opportunity. A lot of companies now where, where they can kind of de-risk things uh, at the preclinical stage or have, you know, more steeper learning curves uh, before they're going into things. So we're seeing, um, yeah, we're seeing a lot of optimizations around physical devices and things through software. All right. That makes sense. It's really great that, so there's just, so basically there's, there's tons of problems still out there to solve and software artificial intelligence is going to be able to, you know, certainly help with that. I think it was interesting. You mentioned data. Um, you know, I think any, anytime you're analyzing data, you know, your solution's always as good as the data that you bring to it. Right. Yep. So yeah. And, and, uh, and there's a ton of that being captured. You have better cameras being invented daily. Uh, you have, you know, better satellites in space that are capturing imaging data and sounding data and then how do we kind of uh, turn that into something that's meaningful? Well, that, that piece is largely a software problem. So companies that are uh, at the intersection of those two things are doing 
things that we're really interested in. We're not necessarily interested in uh, an app that's, you know, selling people ads. Uh, we're kind of more interested in where software meets kind of novel hard technology and uh, can really do interesting things. Gotcha. Can you provide an example in that, even if it's not a company you invested in, but uh, where the where the software is is meeting with things? What what type yeah, of program yeah. would we be thinking of here? So there's a company I looked at uh, the other day that you know they were focused. It was a software company focused on kind of optimizing solar pattern, panels and the configuration of where they point at different times in the day, capturing energy from starlight and and changing the configuration during nighttime. Uh, so seeing a lot of things like that software paired with uh, sensors or on the ground devices, you know, just there's almost unlimited applications. Um, There's a company in North Carolina that was doing something very interesting with uh, taking satellite data and then determining kind of, uh, you know, a land management program, optimizing a land management program via software for the purposes of of farming. Um, So we've seen, a number of those kinds of companies and where we see the ones that have a lot of like data, as you guys point out, like data is a big component. So the ones who have access uh, to either really high quality data or the ones that I have created a device that's capturing that data. And then they have kind of a novel use of how to uh, drive value are ones that have been most interesting to us. So out of curiosity, is your you know, your ideal company, are, are you looking at somebody who's going to be able to exit quickly or sell off? Or are you looking for a company that's going to grow an IPO? Is is the exit strategy, is that, I mean, is that a, um, you know, something that really matters to you when you're making these kind of investment decisions? Yeah, that one's tricky. I mean, so we're looking at things that are longer term in nature. Um, just because I don't, I mean, a lot, every company when they give you when they prognosticate about where they're going to be in five years, it's going to be a hockey stick. They're going to be IPOing for billions of dollars. And it's really something that's hard to, uh, it's really hard to predict. Uh, so it's something where we're kind of, we want to be comfortable holding the company for 10 years if we have to, and they're performing. We don't want to be kind of artificially pushing the exit button at some point that's like clearly not optimal. Um, and so that's, that's something we've seen. Uh, and you want to be exiting in a good environment. So when you look at like a WeWork or something, just mass, I mean, that was a complicated situation, but just massive value destruction. And timing, I think, was a pretty big component of that. Uh, so you, want, you don't want to force things uh, at all. So having kind of flexibility in your plan, flexible capital, is is super i mean for the small guy it is your advantage do you have i guess that's a great question right about do you have a target exit point do you want to exit uh pre-ipo post-ipo anything like that an ipo would be uh for anyone that's not quite sure is your initial public offering that's when a company finally takes shares to market and offers them on a on an exchange it's the new york stock exchange or the uh or the nasdaq such as uber did in 2019 or beyond Meat did also in, in 2019 where they you know they built their company for years and then finally said okay we're gonna allow the public to buy shares in our company um what what is your what is a lum shares target or do they have one yeah, I mean, our targets are mostly going to be uh, via acquisition. Um, so the company gets acquired and then we get money coming back to us as a, as a result of that. IPO is obviously attractive too. It's happening later and later. Um, 
but we really want just kind of an optimal exit. We're mostly now investing in opportunities where we think that can be had in five to 10 years. Um, but yeah, we're not tight. We're not married to one particular scenario. So are you in, are you investors that have invested in warm shares? Are they comfortable with that? I'm assuming they're comfortable with that time horizon too, that they're going to give you your money and they're going to, with the plan that we're going to wait it, wait it out and, you know, exit later on. I guess that's the, what you tell those folks. Yeah. Yeah. So it's communicated up front. I mean, we give rough time horizons in terms of when we anticipate an exit. Uh, so for the companies we've been investing in currently, we're doing kind of shorter opportunities because we really want, we're in the validation stage. Um, so we're looking for kind of opportunities that, uh, the catalysts are near term or there's less kind of a, of a arduous regulatory path they have to go through. Uh, so right now we're not investing uh, in therapeutics companies primarily because of the, the time horizon, the time horizon you're looking at is probably 15 years. Um, so we're of course communicating up front uh, what we anticipate the time horizon is, and we're making sure the company's tracking and progressing towards it. Uh, but by the same token, we don't want to shoehorn a exit time horizon in that doesn't make sense. So if the company's killing it uh, and they have, you know, tons of things in front of them that can unlock considerable value, we don't want to be trying to jump off. Well, that's all right. So we were talking a little bit about exit strategies here. That, that made me think, what about the individual investor? Um, the, what, what's the individual investor in alum shares, what's their exit strategy? What, what exit strategies do they have? If I had given you, let's just say, for example, uh, Michael here has finally, you know, is now generating my $200,000 per year and has that million dollars of investable income sitting off, off in the side. And I gave you $10,000 to invest in alum shares. And, you know, and then tomorrow, you know, whatever, um, you know, I just want, I want to buy a really expensive milkshake. Can I, can I cash out my $10,000? No. So the investments in alum shares currently are illiquid, uh, meaning you're along for the ride. So you get, when the company achieves a liquidity event, you get your money back plus, you know, whatever profits are realized. Uh, but it's not something that can be liquidated before that time because the money's been put to work by management. They may have gone out and bought equipment. They may have gone out and spent money on patents or research or hiring people. Uh, and so, you know, you're, you're in it for the long haul. Certainly. All right. So it's not by any stretch of the imagine a, a swing trade or a day trade or anything like I, I typically do. <laughs> it, it's the opposite of a day trade. All right. Awesome. Um, you mentioned earlier that you have kind of teams that go out and, and look at different things. What, what type, what's your team size right now? How many people do you have working for you? Are they part-time, full-time? Can you, can you go into that any? Yeah. Yeah. So our team, we currently have around eight people. Uh, and on the investments team, you know, we have kind of experts in, in different fields uh, that are, you know, reviewing opportunities constantly. So, you know, we focus quite a bit on life science opportunities. So that's the majority of our investments team at this time is focused on life science and kind of have a traditional life science venture background. What, what is a life science? Life science, meaning like, you know, biotechnology companies. Uh, so companies, I mean, that includes medical devices that includes companies that are developing novel drugs, uh, things, things of that nature. So that would uh, be any, 
anything to do with maybe the COVID-19? Could you yeah, absolutely possibly relate that or give us an example? I mean, COVID-19, when you look at that, several of, of the uh, kind of most promising vaccine candidates were incubated in university labs. Uh, so Gilead's lead candidate came out of University of Alabama Research Lab through a licensing agreement with them. Uh, Moderna, Moderna Therapeutics, their lead candidate came through, I believe, Harvard and UPenn. Uh, and that was something that they licensed and have been developing. So, I mean, these things, like, they have real applications. Um, do, you, do you mind if I just jump in just with a quick story here? Yeah, I, please, I, please do. As some of you in the previous podcast know, I, I work in tech transfer. That's how me and Mike actually got connected. But um, I there's a, there's a front page story about technology transfer universities that were developing drugs about COVID. On the front page of the Washington Post on last Friday, and basically a hedge fund manager had approached Emory University where they had a, dr- a promising drug candidate for uh, COVID-19. And they basically purchased the drug rights and the hedge fund flipped it to Merck in an exclusive deal. And of course, you can imagine the public outrage that some you know, hedge fund guy bought public university research and then flipped it for, to Merck for you know, an undisclosed amount of money, right? And you know, of course, as he, for someone who works at the university, I have, you know, I have empathy with Emory. The goal there is to try to commercialize university technology to let private industry be able to take these things out. So using that profit incentive. So you want people to be incentivized to take these things, but the story doesn't look good when you give it to somebody who immediately just flips it the next year in a few days to somebody else for a lot more money when, uh, yeah. when the university is involved. You're right. The, the optics are terrible because you have tons of money coming in from taxpayers, from university alumni, uh, and then you have kind of a dis- disinterested party come in, take something that like has quite a bit of value at this point in time and flip it uh, is not good optics. So, I mean, that was one of the reasons we got started is to give alumni the ability to invest in this stuff. So I know, all right, back to alum shares, you said alumni has to invest. Do I have to have attended the university to invest in that university's technology? How does, how does that work? Yep, that's how it works. So if you went to a particular school, that school is unlocked for you. Uh, so anything that's coming out of there that shows quite a bit of promise, you have the ability to invest in. Gotcha. So somebody like Brian, Brian, are you at, what, are you NCSU? I know you work there now, but where, is that where you went? I no, I went, I went to <laughs> this place called Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. They, uh, is in California, kind of a smaller university, engineering focused. And I went to UC Davis for law school. So yeah, I, I just love NC State, you know, and I, I give back to NC State, but I'm not, I'm not an official graduate. <laughs> Yeah, gotcha. we may we may explore ways to open it up, but at this point, uh, you know, given kind of not seeing enough really good opportunities, we're we're giving priority to people who have attended the school. Certainly, that makes sense. But I would love to see you open it up to more because I'm a I'm personally a Strayer University, which is the you know they're an online school. They really don't do a lot of research and development or anything, you know. But I came from a different background. I I joined the Marine Corps out of high school. And, uh, you know, went overseas a couple of times and then came back and I said, well, I'm not necessarily, you know, at this point where I've got experience, but I didn't have that degree. So I was more looking for a check in the box, but now I didn't realize that it would ultimately limit my ability to invest in, uh, in growing companies later on in life. (laughs) Yeah. And that's something, like I said, like we hope to open up at a later point, but at this point, uh, we're more constrained by finding good companies at good values than uh, capital. 
certainly. No, that makes sense. That's very fair. So you guys are being very kind of uh, stringent on your requirements, trying to make sure that everything works very well with each other uh, before you start opening it up to a broader market, broader range of investors. And, and no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I really, I appreciate you going into all of this. Um, I think it's incredible what you've done already with just eight people. You said eight people. Are those full-time employees that you have? I mean, we don't have everyone working full-time uh, at this juncture. We don't, it doesn't really make sense to. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've been kind of configured at different points in different ways over the last two years. Um, so it's not, it's an, not an entire eight-person full-time team. We've got folks doing design. Uh, that are doing it on a part-time basis. And then, you know, folks like myself that, that are obviously uh, working full-time. I checked out the biases with some really impressive backgrounds, you know, with, uh, with the, especially on the due diligence side of the, those folks. I mean, those are some smart people there. Oh, we've got a, we've absolutely, we have a strong team. The folks on the investment team have worked at some of the top venture shops in the world deploying, you know, massive amounts of money. Um, so we, I mean, we've got kind of the experience and rigor of a big shop, but we're currently pretty small. Yeah, great. So I wanted to get a little bit more about you, Mike. I noticed on your LinkedIn profile that you're also an advisor on the board of directors for Carnegie Concierge. What, what is that? Oh, Carnegie. Yeah, so that's a remodeling business I invested in. Uh, so I've got a couple small kind of PE size investments. Um, you know, I, I've invested in a number of things, real estate, uh, out, outside of the pure tech space, but I try and employ a barbell approach in my investments. So I'll invest in kind of stabilized cash flow, old world, uh, things at one end of the spectrum. And then at the end of the other end of the spectrum, I'm targeting kind of bleeding edge, uh, big step change technology. So Carnegie is a company that's doing remodeling. What type of remodeling are they doing? I mean, kitchens, remodeling, kitchens? bathrooms. Okay, residential. Residential remodeling. That's right. Okay, awesome. Painting houses. Nothing sexy, but uh, good cash flow. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I really like that. I think that I think that actually gives a really good perspective on a little bit who more you know you are. Uh, that you you've balanced your. Uh, it sounds like it sounds like you kind of balance your risk, balance your investments. And something that you know is always going to be there, you know, right? Like there's always going to be a need for renovations uh, in houses, right? In residential houses. And at the same time, um, you know, you're, you're investing in some of the most leading edge companies in, in the entire world, uh, yeah. as far as we know right now. For sure. And that's, and that's kind of the approach I want to give to everyone. Uh, so if you're working, you know, you're working a salaried position, you don't have a lot of volatility in your cash flow coming in from that on, on the upside or the downside, which is great. You want that cash flow, but can you take a piece of that and go for something where you could get a massive return? Uh, and right now, as you pointed out earlier, that's largely gone in the IPO market. Like the opportunity to invest in Amazon, right? As they're kind of hitting their stride or Google, right? As they're hitting their stride and they've IPO'd and getting fantastic returns, it could happen still, um, but a lot of those companies that look like they may be those Amazons, Google kind of world shifting companies, you know, they're IPOing at valuations in 50 plus billion dollars. So if you look at a Stripe or you look at a Uber, um, you know, a lot of the juice is, is squeezed. Uh, so there could be more for sure, but you're just, 
you don't have the same upside potential coming in that late. Certainly. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, we are getting kind of towards the end of it. Mike, is there anything, is there a, can you provide some contact information if somebody did want to get in touch with you? Um, yeah. Whether it be Twitter, what, what do you got? Yeah, my email is michael at alumshares.com. Uh, hit me up on there if you're interested in, in what we've got going on. I'd love to chat with you. All right. And um, I see Brian. Brian's smiling over there. Well, we come to the interesting question segment of, of the podcast. Okay. And I, Sweet. I had both uh, you know, Michael and Mike participate. So this is actually a little bit different. I'm going to ask a series of questions, okay? And you can justify your response as we go along, okay? So, um, you, uh, I, so here's the proposition. Um, you have a 10% chance to make $100. I give you a guaranteed $10. Which do you prefer? So 10% for $100 or I'm giving guaranteed $10 right now. Where would you, where would you prefer? I'm saying a guaranteed $10. Okay. 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 What if I said it was a, it was an 11% chance to make $100 and a guaranteed $10. Now what are you taking? 11% chance to make $100 or a guaranteed 10. Mike, I cut you off. What do you got? I'm taking the 11% for sure. I'm taking the 10% of a hundred bucks too, just cause 10 bucks <laughs> is not, is not going to be as material. Okay. Uh, so we're talking low dollars. If you flip that question and you're giving me. All right, cool. Yeah. Low dollars. I'm taking, I'm taking the, uh, the coin flip here. Okay. Okay. So if I said $10 million guaranteed or 10% of a hundred million, your answer would change. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's going to be a different portion of my bankroll. And so it's going to be something that's going to change my answer for sure. If I said 15% for a chance for a hundred million or 10 million guaranteed, does that change your answer? If we're talking about, yeah, I mean, I'm probably taking at that point that I think I'm taking the 10 million. You still take the 10 million because it's guaranteed. It's kind of life changing amount of money. Yeah. And you're talking about an outcome where you have a 85% chance of failure. It's a non-iterated iterated game. You're doing it one time. I'm taking the 10. All right. Is that, is that what you're going to do, Michael? Oh, all right. I know I play in penny <laughs> stocks. All right. And you know, it sounds like I love volatility, but the thing is, I don't, I can't take it very long. So I can't even, I can barely hold a position overnight. Um, so that's why I'm happy. Anytime if I've got the profit, I lock it in as long as it's within my plan. As long as, you know, you're giving me an opportunity that's outside of my plan. And I got a chance to lock in a profit, $10. I'm locking it in. Okay. Now I'm going to reverse the question. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a robber. I have a gun pointed at you. I was like, I don't think I gave him a chance with you. Uh, you're going to either give me $10 or I'll shoot you. Or we can play a game where I roll a dice. And if it's 10% chance, you're going to give me $100. Okay. Which do you choose then? So you're either going to give me $10 or you're going to, take a 10% chance to give me $100. So now, now you're going to gain money. I'm going to take your money. Which do you prefer? Do you to prefer to give me a guaranteed $10 or do you prefer to have me have a chance of taking more of your money? I would rather give you the $10. I lock in my <laughs> loss and I'm done. Once again, it's my, it's my sleeping. It's my ability to sleep afterwards, you know, knowing that if it goes against me, I'll always second guess myself. But if I can just lock in a loss, lock in a gain and move on with life, I'm used. That's, that's kind of the, my, that's why, that's why I trade. That's why, I, but I also trade and I'm also, you know, my main strategy is cash by noon. 
you know, okay, yeah. I might be taking a, I might take a position at nine forty five, ten o'clock. Like I'm cash by noon because I can't stand knowing I have that much volatility out there, that much chance out there. I like, I like to know what I have. I like to lock it in as soon as I can. So, so Mike, what would you, what would you prefer? I mean, it is kind of a small dollar amount, but we'll, we'll change the scenario. But in that scenario, I'm giving me a guaranteed ten, or you want to, you want to roll the dice? I mean, I'm not. Yeah, I'm absolutely paying the ten dollars and not getting shot. <laughs> I don't know if that demonstrates the loss aversion thing. It, the 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 consequence is so extreme. Like you're taking the guaranteed thing if it's so. But it, we, uh, but it, okay, so now now it's even like we've, we've amplified it. So now you know I'm some Russian hackers. I've hacked your bank account. You say, yeah, I'm gonna play you know Joker roulette with you. I'm gonna either suck a hundred thousand dollars out of your bank account, or you know I'm gonna suck. Well, I guess I don't know how much a million dollars out of your bank account, right? <laughs> Um, and it's a 10% chance. If the, if the number is higher, do you still take the guaranteed amount of money then? Or is that now, again, it's kind of life-changing. You might as well just go all in and throw the dice. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely paying the smaller amount uh, at that point. And it's, I mean, it's it. what you're illustrating is like expected value isn't everything. You have to consider kind of relative to your bankroll. That's a huge component of risk management. Yeah. So I guess the point of these questions is, is it loss aversion versus like, you know, you know, cutting in gains, but you kind of answered it both in the similar fashion. You rather lock in the amount rather than kind of, you know, well, depending on the level, right. That's kind of exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'm, I'm saying, I don't care if it's, it's a dollar. I'm going to lock it in. All right. I'm, I'm very, I don't, I don't do well with long-term risk. I like to just lock it in. It'd be okay. Lock in gains. You like, you like the gains. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even, even Friday, if you have an opportunity to last Friday, uh, the 12th, what I was trading, you know what? The trade ended up and I ended up $7 and 50 cents up on the trade. Oh, I got your cup of coffee. <laughs> I was happy with that. I was like, that's it. That's where the trade ended, you know. I had potential to make more if I had, you know, rolled the dice. But at the same time, I stuck with my plan. I was out at a certain time, and I was able to move on with the day. I don't, and just it's me personally, I don't move on that well when I've still got money at stake because I can check it again, and it's up 200. Then I check it again, and I'm down 200. Like, I just don't do well with that, uh, that level of uncertainty. <laughs> That's, you know, my personal, my personal mental, uh, mental health there. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's mental health. You know, that's invaluable, right? So, <laughs> For sure. Well, we appreciate your time. Uh, yeah, Mike, uh, Mike. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with before we, I think we're wrapping this up right here. Was there anything else you'd like to, uh, that you didn't get a chance to say that you'd like to leave us with? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think this is a cool resource to people who are trading. You know, I wish I had something like this when I was starting out, probably would have saved me a little money. Um, but yeah, I mean, people have to like, if you're investing or trading, the key is kind of balancing your, like you can be your own worst enemy. Uh, so kind of recognize as Brian just illustrated, recognizing some of these uh, psychological fallacies, you know, we can all fall prey to and kind of not acting upon them uh, can be a pretty powerful thing. So I appreciate you guys having me on. This was, this was fun. Absolutely. I, I can't, I can't end it any better than that. So thank you a lot. Brian, you want to take us out? All right. Well, this is uh, Trading for Keeps, and uh, we'll see you next time. This is Michael. And this is Brian. (laughs)